Hello and welcome to Watch the Throne. What a lovely day. This is episode 37, A Million Ways to Die in the West from 2014. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Nick Manzi. And with us today, we have back from, oh, I should have looked this up before, back from uh, Reindeer Games. Here he is, all the way back from playing Rudy with, you know, the powwow safe, <laughs> wherever that movie took place. We've got Dan Hayden. Hello, Dan. Hi, how you going, Joey, Mike? Nice to see you guys. Things, hey. things are good. Good to have you back. So, Mike, we got to a point mm-hmm. I didn't think we were going to get to. We got to the most ego-fueled Charlize Theron movie since a Woody Allen movie. It is crazy. I, I mean, I didn't think anyone could do that more than Woody Allen, to be honest with you. But here we are with Seth MacFarlane, who yep. wrote a movie just so he could kiss Charlize Theron. Or yeah. At least that's how it feels. <laughs> it, uh, oh boy, it's um, it's a lot. I saw this movie in theaters oh, somehow. Really? And yeah, and I don't know how I sat through it in theaters without like blowing my brains out or walking out of the theater <laughs> because it's long, not very funny. Like, let me preface this by saying I think Seth MacFarlane is incredibly talented. Like, I am in awe of his talent in a lot of ways. As a leading actor in this movie, not even a little bit. Mm-hmm. Like, I think he's an incredible musician for, you know, whenever he does, like, the, the, the stuff, like, the, the when he's Family Guy, or, like, like his, like, you know, his award-hosting stuff. The type of humor, it's not exactly for me, but I think he knows his audience, and it's great for that. Like, I am really impressed by a lot of what he does, and yet I cannot stand this movie. <laughs> yeah, I can't, couldn't quite put my finger on what he was trying to accomplish aside from, yeah, making out with Charlize Theron. Uh, it's, yeah. It seems like it's a lot of jumbled up little one raunchy joke here, little sight gag here. It, it, and then just like the, the entire thing is just a huge, strange, if a modern day guy would have a commentary on, you know, the the 1880s West. Well, that's the thing. Like, it's like a live-action cartoon almost, like an episode of Family Guy in the West. And I almost feel like if this was animated, it could have fixed, like, a lot of its issues. Like, just because of its live-action nature, I don't feel like a lot well, I like of these... like that, yeah. I don't, I don't feel like a lot of these jokes land like especially the physical ones but you know this isn't blazing saddles i think he was kind of trying to go for that but his sensibilities are a little different and it's weird this feels like a romantic comedy stuck back in the west but it feels as if like the seth MacFarlane character was like from today so he's like lost in time or something and like just do that because like we have a shout out to Back to the Future anyway with the Doc Brown cameo. Just, you know, make that the storyline or something. I don't care. But it's just not gelling here. I am also sort of with you, Joey. Like, I think the guy's got tremendous talent. Like, I was just more of a Simpsons fan when the Family Guy came out. So um, people yeah. were sort of taking sides back in the day. But I've sort of grown to like American Guy a lot. And I really like his variety show stuff that he did. Like, one or two of those um, big old school specials where, like you said, like he comes out and he sings and dances. He's almost got like a very good sort of crooning voice to him, almost like Sinatra-esque, dare I say, but he is not a leading man whatsoever. Like, this is just not his forte. Uh, he doesn't even look or feel comfortable to me on screen when he's on in front of the camera, so I'm kind of surprised that he even decided to play 
the lead here. Like we saw him in Soderbergh recently, right? As just sort of like a little walk-on role. But that was great because he was in character. Exactly. Like this, yeah. This is just him as him. That's the and problem. The yeah. most jarring thing to me in this movie is that they speak with no accent, aside from Liam Neeson, who apparently was just willing to do this movie if like he was allowed to do like the, the whatever accent he wanted to do. And Seth Friends like, yeah, sure, whatever. But like they speak with whatever accent they want, just normal stuff. They use modern day parlance, which I guess works if it were if it works for you, that's great. But for me, I was just like he and Charlie Starin just talking like as though it's 2015 or 2014 or whatever this movie came out, but just like in 1882 in Arizona. I'm just like this just feels weird like it feels like he's trying to write like this like love letter of sorts to the old west and doesn't want to get like little like he gets so many little details right and then just like that feels so incorrect intentionally so and i don't know why i don't know why it's like that yeah it took a while for me to you know remember that this is like you know supposed to be like an old west movie because i yeah the the way everyone's talking just kind of throws it off a little bit and it's funny you mentioned that like this could have been better done as an as like an animated movie how do you think this movie could have possibly gone better if it was like in a fat like like in a family guy form you think or something like that well i feel like it already is for the most part i mean the way that jokes are told and set up or there's a lot of things that just feel like cutaways you know or like i mean it's not it's not like he even says like hey remember the time and then they cut to it or anything but a lot of i feel like the humor feels very much like um not really derived from like the story per se but just like the concept like oh the old west can be hilarious like you know they used to shit in outhouses so like we could do a lot of that kind of humor and you know we can just say like horse shit and like no i mean look out for the horse shit you know like that kind of stuff like i don't really feel like the comedy is naturally inherent to the plot in very many ways like it is from time to time just because it will be and they'll they'll hit those jokes but the majority i feel of the humor is a lot of this sort of not the the non sequitur stuff or like just the things that are observational humor from the character's perspective. So I just feel like ultimately if it was animated, it would just feel closer to that type of branding, I guess, you know? Yeah, like the frickin' photo joke. The joke about not smiling yeah. in the photos. Yeah. Did it really need four, was it four references? Yeah. I just don't think the movie just seemed very cohesive to me. It seemed very much rushed. I have this idea of making this Western movie where at the end of the movie, I shoot a guy and, and I get I, I get a girl and a, a new perspective on life because I'm not with like this shallow person that hates me. It just You're right. It, it is a romantic comedy. It's completely a romantic comedy. And that's what's so weird because if he, he wouldn't have because he, he's Seth MacFarlane, but if he had just made that Western and not this comedy, like I haven't really seen that before. The idea of a romantic comedy taken seriously in the old West and that stuff could work on its own, but it, he's just not really focused on that in this movie. It's just more about trying to get people laugh scene to scene as opposed to like really get any kind of like solid story going. And because like even the end when he shoots with the poison bullet, like that's cool. Like, okay, but this guy hasn't really, this it hasn't been that movie up until this point. So even that moment, isn't feel like it is rewarded. And like to get to that point of sit around a campfire and hear people talk Mila Kunis, Mila Kunis for a while, be like, okay, that's just what this movie is. You know what I mean? Like it's Mm -hmm. just, it feels all over the place. I had this sort of same sort of criticism when I saw Chef, but I like Chef as a movie, so I'm able to over like overlook it. But I feel like for me, Chef is the kind of movie that Jon Favreau wrote because he's like, look, 
I want to be in a movie where Scarlett Johansson and Sofia Vergara, Olivia Wilde, maybe not. Who who else is in that movie? Sofia Sofia Vergara and like two or three different women who are like either all loved me or all like. This feels like a kind of movie where he's like, let's start a movie where I'm dating Amanda Seyfried, beautiful, and then we break up and I'm heartbroken, but then I get an even better, even hotter woman. And it's a movie where Charlize Theron is going to tell me how great I am, where I get to kiss her in the end. And I know that's not, I'm assuming, what happened, but it just feels like, let's have a movie where like I can get an ego boost from these beautiful actresses that everybody loves, and just let them have fun. Like, I, I can totally see why she would do this movie. Like, if, she, if this is her kind of humor, if you know, she wants to make a movie in the Old West, if whatever. Like, I can see a lot of reasons why but i also see more so reasons why he would want to make this movie and cast her in it i'm jealous i guess is the bottom line <laughs> yeah no i hear you i mean i and i could totally see why she would want to do this movie it almost feels written for her too basically like he's just constantly complimenting her character on like her looks or her intelligence or her abilities and all this thing and like that's cool that's great that we and she genuinely is that type of character like she's beautiful she's smart like she's cunning she's you know all these things I think the issue is that like he's constantly reminding like that's all he's really talking about it's like okay I could see it she she can speak for herself but I also can see like what her character gets to do is kind of fun as well when she's not just playing like the wingman kind of stuff like that kind of bothers me but I do like the way that she like I do like her comic timing I do think she has comic timing like I think she's good at comedy I just wish she was doing better comedy uh, yeah. and more comedies and, and all that kind of stuff because she could really throw herself into this kind of stuff and, and make it work and everything. So, like, at least she's performing well. Yeah, she's the best part of the movie character-wise. Yeah, she, she's not, like, the, the best written character, but what they gave her to work with, she achieves. Yeah, I just think of the way she delivered all that stuff about being married at nine but not having sex till she was ten. Oh, I'm rounding it up and everything. Like, that's It was, it was late nine. I'm rounding up. Yeah. yeah, like, that's not my... Like, that's kind of dumb gross humor and stuff but like she she got through and she pulled it off i feel like she did it better than other people would have in the way that she like was reacting about it well like i mean i think we know by now that she is incredibly charming and a great actress and can deliver whatever like we haven't really seen her be bad in many if any movies like i'm trying to think she's able to sell whatever you give her just I agree with you, Mike. Like, give her better stuff. I also, I'm glad you brought up the wingman stuff because I'm like, I wrote, she's like the best wingman or wing woman in like the history of movies. Like, she is just let me make this girl super jealous of you. Oh, and by the way, like I'm gonna be such a good wingman, wing woman. I'm just gonna date you at the end. Yeah, it's crazy because before I saw this movie, I was outlining a script in school called The Wing Girl, and it was basically like the idea that this best friend helped her guy friend try and get a girl back but then they ended up falling for each other at the end so it's basically this movie but in modern day without any of the uh sick humor <laughs> in terms of charlie staring there's not a lot to talk about in this movie because i can think we can skip a lot of it but in terms of charlie staring she rides into town and it looks like she's just part of liam neeson's posse who is basically playing clint eastwood what's his name like clutch leatherwood clitch leatherwood <laughs> clinch, clinch, Le- clinch yeah. leatherwood and she it looks like she's just part of her are part of his posse. Then we find out that she's married to him, but she seems like tired and resentful and not so thrilled to be with him anymore. In that opening scene, what I really, really liked was where she was like saying how quote-unquote lucky she was to be married to him, and she's just like in the most dry, deadpan way, oh my God, I love you. I'm like the luckiest girl ever in the history of girls. Like she's able to like 
inject this character, which I think is, it feels like a lot of these characters are sort of generic Western tropes on mm-hmm. purpose with, you know, a little bit of flair. Like we have this here, we have Neil Patrick Harris in a really great role, mm-hmm. if only because of what he brings to it, I think. But like everything sort of feels like a cliche, which I get and which I okay with. And I just like this, you know, Outlaw's bride who is tired of the outlaw but she's able to bring these like little bits of life to the character he sends her off what happens okay he's like yeah. <laughs> go into town because i need you to be safe i'm gonna come back later like i don't remember i didn't write it down for some reason yeah why does she get separated from clinch clinch is, is taking like a majority of the gang and going to like scout ahead and lay low her and his other little henchman guy are supposed to just go to the town also lay low while they they, okay. they have like a bunch of gold or something they're trying to yeah, hide that's it on the dusty trail, they run into the old prospector. And speaking of cliches, Joey, like yeah. we get the guys like, "I got my gold," and uh, they take it. Yeah. And that's when you find out that Clinch always shoots on two instead of yes. three. And you also get the sense that Charlize is, yeah, like you said, like isn't an outlaw, just sort of like entangled with them because she's like, "Just let him go," and he's like, "I'm gonna kill him for fun." So they're about to go, I think, up to the gold site. Yeah, Charlize and her—they say it's her brother. I just figured, what the hell, might as well be her brother um and they go to town right to sort of like i guess get a place ready for them so that they could all come back with the gold and posse up but it's not exactly clear i don't think seth really cares about this little thing it's like she should have just wandered into town one day and you could have just cut all that other stuff out i guess you have to set up the fact that she's with him to sort of give the end more stakes or give like because if she's just like a girl Right, that just comes into town, whatever. Like that, you don't really know that she's. Mad. I don't. I don't know. Like, I feel like, like I don't have a problem with the setup. It just sort of. It, it, it's just kind of whatever. Like you have to get her to town with like the history of like a, a shady backstory. Essentially, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very fast and loose. But it's strange. Like you're saying, yeah, she's got to have some kind of relationship with the guy. It, I find it strange that at the end of the movie, Liam Neeson is threatening to shoot his own wife if. Albert doesn't come and face him. There's a lot of really loose writing in this, too, because the movie opens with Seth MacFarlane at a duel, and he's like, how about I come by Sunday and pay you off? You never see it, but later in the movie, it just kind of like drops a line to Giovanni Ribisi. (laughs) Him and Sarah are like my second favorite part of this movie, but he drops a line where he's like, I even went by that guy's house and paid him off, you know, so he wouldn't kill me. It's like, dude, you're just sort of dropping threads and... They're supposed to be jokes, but it feels like they're supposed to be integral parts of the plot. And when they wind up not being, the movie feels like it's filled with holes. Yeah. What makes Blazing Saddles so great is the it's about race you know what i'm saying like that first and foremost like the idea of the african-american sheriff coming into town in the old west and taking over and teaming up with like the old white gunslinger and they're gonna fight apartheid and it's great and the jokes really stem from that it's because at the time and even today maybe even more so it's a really strong issue and i think here everything hinges on the idea that oh i'm a guy from today but i'm stuck then and so i talk like today and i make observations like Seinfeld but like no one around me understands them because they're not from today and they're not acting so you know like I feel like the joke that this hinges on isn't strong enough to carry the movie in a way that something like Blazing Saddles is because then in Blazing Saddles you can just sort of like do non sequitur things like hey Count Basie and his orchestra you know like out in the middle of the desert actually playing the music and it's and it's funny and it's fun Um, but if you do that in this movie it just it doesn't feel like it belongs Blazing Saddles is a fantastic movie it's it's really hard to put this movie up against that. That's like that's probably one of the first semi-adult comedies that I saw ever 
and it's still it's still one of my one of my more favorite comedy movies. So trying to trying to hold that to uh, up to this one is a little difficult. No, but I mean just in the sense that it's the only other mm-hmm. movie like it. Yeah. Like it's a western comedy. I really stress hard to think of another one. Maybe I think Christopher Guest made one about Lewis and Clark, but yeah, it's just not a common thing. Wait, did Christopher Guest do one about Lewis and Clark? He did one. I, I don't know if it was the Lewis and Clark one, or I think maybe it was the one with John Candy, but if I'm not mistaken... Was it Wagons East? It could have been Wagons East. I think that was the Lewis and Clark one, though. I, I don't know. I digress, I guess. Almost Heroes? Okay. Is that the one that... where they... It's the real guys who did yeah. it, but they kind of get stuck, like, walked over yes. by Lewis and Clark? Yes. Okay. That is, I never saw this one. We were just talking about Christopher Guest recently. I, this is one that I didn't see. I think this must be the only one. This is uh, Matthew Perry and Chris Farley. Okay, that's it. Yeah, I think that's the one. Chris Farley's last leading film role was released following his death in 97. Speaking of Christopher Guest, uh, I loved, I wish they were in it more. They were only the, like the one shot, but Fred Armisen and John Michael Higgins as like the town gay couple, I guess, just like in that bar. <laughs> like, I love that. Like, I want more of those. Like, I want the weirdo town people. The, the less time we spend with Seth MacFarlane, the better. I want more time with Neil Patrick Harris and Amanda Seyfried. I want more time with Giovanni Ribisi and Sarah Silverman. I want more time with Fred Armisen and John Michael Higgins. I just, and, and more time with Charlize Theron, of course. But like, I just feel like I don't want time with Seth MacFarlane. And this movie, like for a two-hour runtime, is with him for probably an hour 45 yeah. or more. Why couldn't he just be the bartender? Like, that feels like the perfect role for him, too. In Westerns, like, that can be a very sort of central social gathering point, you know, the saloon and everything. And so, yeah. like, he could be in a lot of the movie and give all this stupid advice and crack dumb jokes and be smart, snarky and everything like that that he wants to be. But we could get it in doses. And, and then we could have maybe put, you know, Giovanni Ribisi in his role or someone's high, You know, I would like to have seen Jake Gyllenhaal play his role. Like, I thought Ooh. that would have been hilarious. I mean, if you've seen even 10 minutes of The Boy in the bubble or was it bubble boy one was travolta okay <laughs> like he, he like he he can really swing for the fences and like i would uh, i would like to see him do some more comedy and, and this feels like something he could have pulled off people give tarantino a lot of shit for like putting himself in movies and giving him big parts you know whether he's jimmy or whether he's the bartender not big parts but like parts like jimmy in pulp fiction or the bartender in death proof but like He's not casting himself as the lead in these movies. Like, I agree with you. Like, put him as the bartender. Put him as, like, any number of roles. I feel like I'm beating a, a dead horse, or I don't want to keep just ragging on it, but, like, mm-hmm. it's just a bummer, man. Yeah, making him the sheep farmer, just so for the sake of giving Neil Patrick Harris a name to call him and a couple of sight gags, and I guess maybe when Liam Neeson's, like, coming for him to kill him and he's, like, hiding out in, like, the herd... And, of course, the the very last shot of the movie where they have, like, a billion sheep. Like, what was the point of making him a sheep farmer? Yeah, I feel like they could have done a lot more by just giving him a different occupation. Uh, yeah, like, like you said, just making him a bartender or something could have lent itself way better to the script. I feel like him being a sheep farmer uh, is the joke. You heard sheep and stuff, but, like, you grow stuff on a farm, and I guess you usually have a cows and horses and things, so, like... He's an idiot because he has sheep. Ha, ha, ha. Like, that's the joke. I feel like you get the same sort of joke with his parents, right? And I think halfway through the movie, his mom dies, but we don't see it. Because in the beginning of the movie, there's two of them sitting in the chair. And at the end, there's just one of them. And there's, like, a common... Anyway, so, like, that's oh, yeah, another, yeah. You know, he's just not concerned with continuity when he doesn't want to be. When it's not 
funny to him, I guess. But yeah, the sheep thing, you know, it was funny once or twice when like they followed him into town and he like called them by name and told them to go home. I was like, ah, oh, hey, that's kind of funny, but not funny enough to the extent in which they stick with this joke. Because yeah, one of my favorite little like throwaway gags or whatever in this movie about the sheep is like when he's you haven't been shearing your sheep and then that sheep that's just like a ball of fluff like runs headfirst into the wall. <laughs> like I like stuff like that. Like that works. I mean, I don't know. I don't think you can really necessarily build an entire movie on that but just like like I enjoy some of the stuff it's just the things they choose to focus on it's just ooh ooh boy okay a couple of little observations about this movie because I don't know how much more we can actually talk about it I like it's also of course Charlie Starr can roll a better cigarette than Seth MacFarlane of course she's in she's in a movie where she uh, just likes to eat pot cookies because we know about her she loves to smoke weed and she or I don't know if she still does but she has in the past and she also uh, used to smoke cigarettes like we're talking about on Prometheus she was having a hard time on that movie because she had to run across land in that really really heavy, heavy bodysuit and was weighed down like she like, couldn't catch her breath because of all the cigarettes she was smoking I just like that like he's such a nerd in this movie that this like outsider or this like cool badass outlaw is better than that kind of stuff but I also just like that it's kind of bringing a little bit of her in a way to this role yeah I was really surprised to find out over the course of Watch the Throne, um, what a pot enthusiast she's been and has been. And I guess even if she doesn't still partake, like she's in that movie Gringo, which is about weed pills and stuff. So she's still like on the side of yeah. um, the stoners and everything. Okay, I, I make it. It's always funny when, you know, people get high on camera and stuff. But two things about that pot scene like were there pot cookies back then <laughs> like could that have even been possible? Would they have called them pot cookies? Right, yeah. Wouldn't it have been like marijuana? cookies or cannabis cookies or whatever yeah or like i don't know some derogatory term for people and the other thing is like they don't sit with that scene once he's high like there's another scene later where he trips with um with the native americans and goes on like a spirit quest if you want to call it that i don't care i was expecting the joke to be look how dumb he is when he's high he's going to like embarrass himself or do something stupid maybe like you know pull his pants down or something but like they basically just cut away after a beautiful looking sunset so i didn't know what the joke was <laughs> funny you mentioned the sunset i actually found some of the shots of this movie to be beautiful this movie is gorgeous yeah like, that w- pisses me off too like it looks better than some of those classic westerns at time and it's just because when you're shooting down in monument valley wherever you point the camera you're going to get an amazing shot yep. <laughs> so the, not only the look but the score at times i'm like this score how much did he spend he must have spent everything on that score because it sounds like a top of the line john williams belongs in a spielberg movie type score and like those things were just bothering me too because it's like yeah be in better movies yeah i went into this movie yeah i saw it in theaters and i didn't look at any reviews because it looked funny to me and i was actually very optimistic from the opening of the movie it was like an old spaghetti western opening with the shots and the overture and the credits and i was like hey maybe this actually will be you know something interesting and good and of course you know from what we're talking about that's that's not the case but uh, the the beginning and then like the horse chase near the end of the movie some parts of the montage when she's uh teaching him to shoot just like some really gorgeous shots yeah that is the that montage was the worst like they're just like how oh like i can't believe i actually kind of like that was that the joke though like that we're target practicing is like because it's the most obvious idea for a montage or something i don't know i like the montage because 
it feels like in a lot of other movies, people get really good really fast. I mean, in Rocky movies, and that's obviously what what they're going for in the Rocky movies. Like, hey, let's show him getting ready to fight Drago in the snow. Here, it's like, what I liked about it is that it's a montage where he doesn't really get better. Like, it's such incremental progress over what feels like forever. You know what I mean? Okay, and I yeah. like that twist on it. I don't know if it's, like, interesting or engaging to watch, but once I sort of realized what I think they might be going for, I was like, oh, I kind of like that, that this guy is so bad at at everything, really, that, like, he can't even get, like, the historic, you know, you do the montage and, like, he can't hit, he can't hit anything, and then by the end, he's, like, dual-wielding and, like, doing yeah, what Charlie's does at the fair. But here, you know, he's just getting, like, incrementally better. Like, he's just barely better, but he's just barely better enough so he can shoot, Liam Neeson with the poison bullet and hit him and then, you know, poison him that way. So, like, I like the idea of it. I don't know if it's done in the most effective yeah. way, but at least in my brain, I was like, oh, that's kind of unique and kind of like a, a twist on what you normally would see in this movie. No, that is. That is actually very funny, and I'm upset that I didn't get that joke in the movie, you know, because I guess I was, I thought the joke was the montage, not the content of the montage, and that by the end, he wasn't a great quick draw, but like he was able to shoot part of one can or something like that. Like, I guess that just kind of, I admit, I, it washed over me, this viewing, uh, even at the end when he just nicks Liam Neeson and that's all he needed to do was get good enough just to barely like hit somebody. Like, I, it was all totally lost on me this time, but, but I do like that idea and that concept. Not only does he just kill him by, by just nicking him, he takes the time to say the name of the movie while he does it. <laughs> well, he says the name like three or four times. He's like, there's a million ways to die in the West. Just walk outside. There's our mayor. He's been dead for five days. The block of ice that falls and, and all that kind of thing. So, yeah, titular line all over this place. You know, every time we see a really weird, crazy death, like the ice scene or like everything at the fair, it just reminds me that I wish we had like way more of it. I know it's an easy joke to make, and like I was saying before we started recording, like all the jokes on Letterboxd seem to be like, oh, that's not actually about a million ways to die in the West or whatever. I wish, like, there are so many other things you could do, like, even just as, like, interstitials between scenes, you know what I mean? Just, mm -hmm. like, have, like, a snake bite somebody. Like, even, like, just, like, sort of basic stuff. Like, if you just really rack up the body count, like, you do, like, a comedy in the Old West, but you have, like, a hundred people die on screen in just, like, wildly different ways. Like, even if it's just not super creative, like, have, like, because everything in here is pretty funny and creative, but just do way more of it. Yeah, the fair, you know, the whole run and get, oh, people die at the fair. People are dying left and right at the fair. If they did that throughout the whole movie, you're right. Maybe it would have been, I, I don't know if it would have made the movie necessarily better, but maybe it just would have helped for the namesake. It would have been a great running gag, too, if there, a lot of it just happens in the background, sort of like off focus or something like offset you know what i'm saying so like they're talking in the foreground and then you just see someone like fall off a cliff or something or like their carriage go out of control and like run into the um, building or something like that and yeah i agree with that wholeheartedly like that's a great way to sort of end a scene too like you know the characters walk off screen like okay let's go and they walk off screen and we linger and then you see you know someone get trampled by a horse or something i don't know but ramp that stuff up have it playing a lot more running in the background and then by the end of the movie you know the viewer is sort of privy to more than the characters on screen and it gives you a nice feeling at the end you're like oh my gosh like i've seen all this stuff going on in the background that these guys haven't even been paying attention to it would have been just just a little bit higher of a body count because yes uh, i counted you only besides like the mayor's corpse you only witnessed 12 people die, and that's including the little extra scene at the end where Django shows up. So apparently they added Django because 
test audiences, and rightfully so, reacted so poorly to the first shooting scene where, like, they're just shooting little, like, little black tin statues or whatever. They added Django in to be like, hey, no, like, we're not making, we're not, we're not trying to shoot black people or whatever. Like, we're going to have, you know, this gunslinger that everybody knows from the West. Like, haha, everything's okay, right? But I do like that they added him. You know what I mean? Like, even if it was just, like, a reflexive or reactive thing to make sure that, like, the movie didn't come off racist, I like that he's there at the end because it's the kind of thing, like you were saying earlier, Mike, with Doc Brown, why not do more of that? Like, if you're going to do it, like, a couple times, why not do it a bunch? They had some really good cameos that I feel just kind of were wasted. I would have liked him to talk more to, like, the talking sheep Patrick Stewart, or not that I think that Gilbert Godfrey's amazing, but maybe oh, run with... Oh, he's a great Abraham Lincoln, though. Yeah, run with that Abraham Lincoln, Lincoln for a little bit longer. I thought it was funny. Uh, guys, I don't think that's the real Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> no! Uh, <laughs> I agree wholeheartedly, which is why I liked that Sarah and Giovanni weren't just one-time jokes, like, that Sarah Silverman is in this entire movie and she's great as the prostitute who's saving herself for her husband but having sex with everybody else and like I really thought that was really funny stuff I wish I mean there's enough of them don't get me wrong but but I just feel like they could have beefed up other roles in a similar fashion obviously my favorite cameo is Ryan Reynolds because in all of the movies that Seth MacFarlane has directed, which is, I think is just this and Ted 1 and 2, Ryan Reynolds is on screen for like a, a second and doesn't say anything in any of those movies. And yep. in this one, like he's on screen and he's about to talk and someone shoots him, I think, right? That's what happens to him. Yep. That's pretty funny. Like, I think that relationship is, is really weird. But yeah, if, it would have been cooler if Jamie Foxx showed up at the fair in the middle of the movie instead of in the post credit scenes or something. But it would have been even cool if like, you know, they walk away and he shows up then, you know what I mean? or he yeah. walks away and then they come up or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, there are ways to do it and not have it be... Like, he doesn't have to talk to them. Just have it in the same scene. My first time seeing this in theaters, I didn't even... I guess I wasn't paying enough attention. I didn't even notice Bill Maher. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I didn't really... I didn't remember he was in it either, and now it's like, how can you forget? He's so just terrible. <laughs> but what it, I mean, the one thing I like about that, it's like, again, like little scene, little moments, but I like that he has the cue cards where they're actually made of wood and like they drop it and like it just like shat, like it just splits mm-hmm. in half. Like there's like little details. Yeah, that feels like a Mel Brooks joke right there. When he's getting it right, it feels like something Mel Brooks would do. And when he's getting it wrong, I'm going to give all the credit to McFarlane, I guess. Neil Patrick Harris with the mustache stuff, uh, the mustache song, having dun, Amanda Seyfried suck dun, his dun. mustache, like not a metaphor, like not a euphemism, just actually suck his mustache like it's just so weird and i get that like that's the character i just feel like he's bringing a lot to it that like i don't know the character is necessarily funny but just his mannerisms and his behavior and like the way he's leaning into it is just it's just wonderful yeah i i really hate the way that he goes out in this movie by just like shitting in a hat and you know that whole thing it was just like why this like we were doing pretty well with this character and he's very eccentric and bizarre but like i totally feel it's a good sort of like parody of people of the time who tried to be like sophisticated and dandies but yet weren't i guess all uh, like sort of putting on airs and stuff so he's a great idea for a character and it just sucks the way that he goes out like that yeah and they give him that little uh how i met your mother nod when he's just like challenge accepted he, he's got that little barney stinson like nod right in the middle there oh mike i also do want to say that we when were talking about bill maher we had the bill maher on whatever movie that was on with zach design we got new rules here too oh shit right i guess we do there we go new rules uh don't cast yourself in your movie with yourself and Corlin. oh so charlie's in this movie is wearing a wig because she shaved her head for fury road which we're getting to oh, in two episodes so i'm very cool. excited for that also of note to you mike 
Seth MacFarlane wrote a novelization of this movie based on the screenplay, the first yes. book he ever wrote. So, Whoa. there you go. Uh, Third oh, time's man, the mic. I, I cannot imagine how that reads. Like, how do some of these jokes play in those novels? Oh, man. I, I'm staying far away from that one. Probably for the best. The scene where uh, Charlie puts a daisy in Clinch's bottom and Liam Neeson's bottom is similar to a classic scene in Carry On Nurse, apparently, where a patient annoys his nurses so bad they insert a daffodil instead of a real rectal thermometer. I get that they're references to things, but it's just, I don't know. That's the most obscure reference no one's ever heard of before. So it just played like an original joke, which I thought was childish but funny like i was like yeah that's like a nice and like super embarrassing way to be found just like i can't leave you like this and he just she just picks the flower just inserts it very 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 lovingly and gently yeah you think she's gonna pull his pants up and she takes even more of his dignity away (laughs) the only other thing is that oh this this shot again this is a movie i've only seen once and like i wouldn't remember but again it's just it sort of paints this movie as a love letter to the old west and to old westerns is that the shot of clinch Liam Neeson, leaving the front door of Albert's house to search from outside is an homage to an iconic scene at the beginning and end of The Searchers. So I feel like this is a movie that, like, he really, you know, cares about and wants to make good, but, like, I don't know, man. Doesn't know how all the way? Like, it just feels like no one was saying no. Like, it just feels like a total prequel situation where everyone involved is just like, good idea, George. Like, yes, George. Like, yep. sure. Like, double down on that. Well, yeah, like, let's... And then start contributing worse ideas, you know, because they're on sort of, like, the bandwagon at that point. Yep. He's an auteur, Joey. Like, talk about cinemakers. Nope, here. nope, nope. <laughs> but he's, like, a poor one. Like, yeah, you know, like, he's just, like, doesn't... I feel like he has too much control. Like, if someone were just there to be like, cut him off at certain points and say, you know, reel it back, like, there is definitely stuff here to craft into a good movie. It's just overkill and indulgence that you just can tell he can't help himself at times. Like, either he doesn't want to or he can't help himself. So, uh, whatever it is, I mean, as long as he's having fun, more power to him, but... Try not to make another movie. <laughs> like, I don't mind that he makes movies. Like, it's fine to make movies. It's just, you know, don't cast yourself. That's, yeah, that's, that's, I, don't that's cast it. yourself. And I also feel like don't try and always please yourself. Because that's another thing I feel like this movie's going for. It's just he's trying to make himself laugh. And sometimes you have to consider the audience. You know, not just your audience, but like this is going to be reaching potentially more people or he's going to be seen by more people than know him from cartoons. It's like they're going to be able to recognize him right. now after this movie as Seth MacFarlane and stuff. So like it's just coming out. Do you really want to come out like this? But I guess he's, I guess it's a whatever. Just my final thing since we're wrapping up here for the movie, it, I, you know, all the shit talk about this movie and everything, like I do love Westerns. So, you know, I wasn't really upset that I had to sit through and watch this again because even like a super terrible Western like has its high points like the scenery for the most part or just like i like the just general aesthetic of the old west too uh, yeah. real dust and dirt and everything but this movie might contain one of my all-time favorite jokes in movies and it pains me to say that because it's this movie every time i mean when i first saw this movie i must have it's one i hit one of those fits where like you can't breathe but when Neil Patrick Harris has to pay Seth MacFarlane a dollar yeah. and he takes out a dollar bill, one of the guys hits his son over the head and tells him to take off his hat. That's a dollar bill. Like, I lost my mind. Like, I just, in the, this time too, like, I laughed extremely hard every time that comes up. And I just think that's one of the greatest jokes 
I don't know exactly why. I mean, <laughs> I guess just because it was a, a dollar was a lot back in 1800s, you know? So, like, it's just really funny how overblown that was. They'd never seen a dollar before. I mean, there's a lot of funny in this movie. It just feels long, and there's just a lot of stuff that isn't funny. I don't know. It's just, it's it's disappointing. But I, I, there's, there is a lot to like in this, and I can absolutely see, like, if this works for you, like, if you can buy into his character, I can absolutely see why, like, why people could love this movie. You know what I mean? I think anybody yeah. who's a fan of just raunchy, his-style comedy, I, I could see this actually pleasing a lot of people who are just rabid, ravenous Seth MacFarlane fans. And there are, yeah. I do meet a lot of people that, you know, they could watch the same episode of Family Guy over and over again because, you know, it's funny to them. And I think for those people, they would probably really, really like this movie. Do you think the people see it? Was this movie successful? I don't know. I don't remember hearing out. much about it. But I agree with uh, with Duke there. Like, I feel, definitely feel like he has his fan base, and this is catering to them, and they probably just have the same type of sense of humor as him. And <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I feel like his base probably loved this stuff, and I guess people like us who are just a little more like I approached it more as a western and less as like a Seth MacFarlane comedy. That it just ended up disappointing on that level for me. Like you can see the nods. Like I bet the Back to the Future reference blew those folks like absolutely away yeah yeah and especially what was this only like four or five years ago it just makes me laugh so much how hard he probably had to fight to get that reference in and in, in Zombieland with Ghostbusters and then now we have you know movies like Ready Player One where it's like the more the merrier and stuff and so it's I wonder if like that might have contributed in a way to be like look like the public loves this kind of thing they want these callbacks to like back to the future and all this stuff so like let's get it back out there like, originally i didn't like that he opens a door and doc brown's there because technically i think it's like two or three years after uh, marty shows back uh, up and stuff well, well mike mike just to let you know I will, I will pick this apart so it does kind of aggravate me because you got to remember the whole trilogy took place in the fictional town of hill valley california in oh, 1885 and we've established in the very first scene of this movie that Old Stump or Little Stump or whatever the town is called is a town in Arizona, and it's 1882. So, not to be that guy, but this reference <laughs> completely is, is inaccurate to uh, where Back to the Future would fall. Here, here. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, don't be sorry. You might have to be on my episode of Back to the Future 3 for third times. I might have to get you in there. That would make me very happy. This movie cost $40 million to make. In the U.S. made 43 so... You know, forty really? probably doesn't count the marketing budget because I think there's, I think this movie was plastered everywhere, and then made another forty-four worldwide, which sort of surprised me. But I guess you know, Family Guy is popular everywhere. You know what I mean? So it made eighty-seven total on forty. So when you factor in marketing, probably didn't make a ton of money, but you know, it is what it is. At least it wasn't a flop, right? Okay, so any other thoughts about A Million Ways to Die in the West, or can we uh, move on? No, yeah, I'm good. Uh, Duke, we have a new game since the last time you joined us. Uh, we have, oh boy, this is going to be good. <laughs> we, we call it Im Unfortunate Improv because nobody really asked for this. We are going to take Charlize Theron's character from this movie, or if that doesn't work, Charlize Theron as an actress, and we're going to put it out in the, ooh, ooh, okay, in the big movie or movies <laughs> of the weekend this comes out. So this episode comes out this Friday, August 10th, okay? There are three big movies coming out that we would like to put Charlize Theron as Annie, is her name, I think? Oh, in, in the this movie. movie, her name? Yeah, I think. Oh. Is it? Anna. Anna, yes, Anna. Mike and Duke, and myself. 
How would we put Anna, or just Charlie Starren if Anna doesn't work, in one of these three movies? The Meg, which is the Jason Statham versus 70-foot shark. Yeah, wait, which is directed by t- uh, Turtle Taub, yep. a, a Cage Club director. Yeah. yeah, John Turtle Taub of the National Treasure movies, absolutely. So that's number one. Number two, Slender Man, <laughs> based on the uh, creepypasta. Or number three, the Spike Lee joint, Black Klansman, oh, man. which sort of feels like it could work here with the Django stuff a little bit. So, is Black Klansman a, a comedy, or is it... It's a biography, comedy, crime, drama. By Spike uh, it's, Lee. It's okay. where a black guy gets to infiltrate the KKK because he just like convinces him on the phone. I don't know. There's, I saw a part of a commercial or something. I think Adam Driver is also a, in on it, too. Like He is also a police officer that goes undercover. for. So one yep. plays the voice on the phone, and one plays the body in person. Oh, I could totally yeah. watch that. Yeah, John David Washington, who is from Ballers, is the star. And then Laura Harrier, who is Liz in Spider-Man Homecoming. The, one, the girl who's not MJ is in it. And then uh, Topher Grace, also, who seems to be popping up a lot on what we're talking about lately, Mike. But All right. Yes. It, I, could, I could take the totally simple road right here. Go for it. All right, so you've got Doc Brown in the time machine. Charlize yep. Theron stumbles upon Anna, stumbles upon the time machine, and decides that not only is she going to go into the future, but she's also going to show up at whatever, because she had never seen a beach before. Like, she's, she's known the desert her whole life. She's never been to the beach. She wants to go. So she goes to the beach and meets Jason Statham, and he's trying to, she's trying to convince him that she's, you know, not somebody from the past, there's all these subtle hints about her being from the Old West, but, like, she pretty well adjusted since she's versatile, intelligent woman. Sure. And then, of course, this huge freaking shark shows up, mm-hmm. and she has to have help Jason Statham shoot and kill it, which helps because, you know, she's, she's really, really good at shooting, but, like, everyone's always insisting, oh, why do you like all these six shooters? And she's like, oh, it's just what I'm comfortable with. And there could be a lot of little subtle things, and when, you know, like... She, they find out that she's from the past. There could be like some kind of a lover's quarrel or something. So, yeah, that, that could work. I like that a lot. Very smart using the time machine there <laughs> to get her character out of there. Love it. All right, Mike, how would you put her, uh, since w- let's not try to do the Meg, Slenderman or Black Klansman? Okay, I don't really know what the hell a Slenderman is. I think I'm too old. I just remember hearing that a couple girls got in trouble for stabbing another girl over it yep. at one point. So Mike, um, Slenderman, just, he's like a ghost-like manipulator of people, like the idea being okay. that like if you if you don't want him to kill you, you should join him. I think that's kind of mm. like the thing. It's from a video game. Okay. Oh, okay. So, Mike, have you did you do you watch X Files? Did you watch the new X Files episodes? No, I haven't seen new X Files. Oh, because there was a uh, there was an episode where they basically did Slenderman uh, in oh, okay. a way. But okay, so if you didn't I'm, see that, I'm, that's not gonna. Help I'm you. still okay. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna go off of my limited knowledge of Slenderman. I'm gonna I'm gonna still go with Slenderman. Okay. And because here's my idea is that after a million ways to die in the West, uh, Seth and Charlize, you know, kind of ride off into the sunset, live a a long life together, but unfortunately, they they come across some hard times, and they they end up having to like pull a job, and they rob this person who is like sort of like an evil practicer of the dark arts and stuff. So what happens is back in like the 1800s, Charlize and Seth get cursed. Seth turns into the Slender Man and starts haunting things for evil. And she turns into the Slender Woman and has to, like, battle him 
on like the uh, astral plane for all eternity and so like they're pitted against each other and now Slenderman is breaking through to our timeline and our reality and I haven't seen the movie yet but if I were writing it Slender Woman not far behind trying to track him down and Ooh. keep him from hurting other people so love it <laughs> that's what I got <laughs> I like I love it. it oh god that leaves me the Black Klansman okay uh, this won't be problematic <laughs> The logline for Black Klansman is Ron Stallworth, an African-American police officer from Colorado, successfully managed to infiltrate the local Ku Klux Klan and become the head of the local chapter. So, okay. Oh, God. You gotta use Jamie Foxx's Django in here because this movie is so white otherwise. Okay. I don't even want to Google when this started because I don't want to search for it. But, like, let's just say the KKK was around in 1882. It might have been, it might not have been, I yeah, don't know. Yeah, they're in Django, like the... Um, oh, yeah, scene. like Jonah Hill. Yeah, they're, they're just starting up or something, but yeah. yeah. This is going to be the prequel to this movie, which I think is based on a real story, oh. Black Klansman. But Charlize Theron goes back to the fair, like after the movie ends, she and Seth MacFarlane are in a happy relationship, apparently. They go back to the fair, and they go back to the shooting range because that's where, like, you know, she wants to win prizes because he is obsessed with that duck that he won her and wants to get a lot more ducks or whatever. And she meets up there with Jamie Foxx as Django because they're both, like, these, like, wild shooting whatever. They become fast friends because they're both, like, these badass outlaws, and now that Clinch is dead, they're both, like, the be- the, the, the quickest draws in the West. They find out that, like, the, like, the KKK rolls into town, and Jamie Foxx is like, oh. Then she, Charlize and he team up in a way to infiltrate the KKK and take it down from the inside. So it's not like he's become the head of the local chapter. They're just getting together to team up to bring it down. Sort of kind of like the opening scene in Bad Boys 2. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's great. So it's... I don't know what the plot is because I don't want to get too in detail, but I do like a world in which Charlize and Django team up because they're both badass sharpshooters or you know what i mean quick draws totally. so there we go so okay Whew, i think I, I think i sort of maybe dodged a bullet there but you know <laughs> pun intended right yeah because pun the... <laughs> intended uh we have an email address here on the show watch at cageclub.me email us let us know what you think of the episodes of the movies did you like this movie do you like family guy did you like the movie and you don't like family guy that would be the interesting thing i want to oh. hear about uh let us know you know we have how many more movies we have, Mike? We have... Not many. Not including this one. We have nine more movies. We've got Dark Places, Fury Road, The Huntsman 2, Winter's War, The Last Face, which I know nothing about, the then what? Kubo, Atomic Blonde, Fate of the Furious, Gringo, Tully. Aside from The Last Face, which I don't know anything about, and aside from Dark Places, which I don't know anything about other than it was written by Gillian Flynn, who wrote Gone Girl and also Sharp Objects. So this is another one of those in that world, kind of, or that style, maybe. The other seven, you know, I haven't seen Gringo or Tully yet, and I haven't seen The Huntsman yet, but I sort of know what's coming. And like, I'm excited here. We're going we're gonna to end on a high note, I think. Yeah. It's not every day that you guys get to watch uh, what I consider to be uh, the greatest action film ever made in that yes. category there. Mm-hmm. I mean, Fury, Fury Road is just... It is, um, it's an absolute masterpiece. I could watch that movie over and over again until the day I die. And then a couple episodes later, we'll have one of the best animated movies of the last five years, if not longer than that. And then we're going to have the worst Fast and the Furious movie. Oh, and also the incredible, incredible Atomic Blonde, too. So, you know, there's there's a lot of good stuff. And then we also have, you know, Jason Reitman, Diablo Cody, Charlie Theron team up again. So we are finally, I think, now that we're past a million ways to die in the West, I'm excited to see movies that I haven't seen, you know, whatever The Last Face is, whatever Dark Place is about. 
you know, I hope there's more campy fun in Winter's War. But there's there's good stuff here, so I'm I'm excited. But anyway, email us, watch at cageclub.me. Let us know what you think. We actually do have an email, Mike. It's not really to us. It was copied to us. But Jess Collins, a.k.a. Jess Montez, fan okay. of the Zack Attack, Boy From Material, Magic Mike's podcast that I do with Joe, too, emailed both Magic Mike's and Watch to talk about Battle in Seattle, because she ranked our fire-ass oh. titles. And she was also talking about how much she loved the Tatum Tots, which are little uh, news segments about Channing, Channing Tatum on that podcast. And she also said, and this is a, a reference to you, that your guest, Mike, for She's the Man, when we did the guess of like how he's going to dance, fight, strip, and be shirtless, mm-hmm. reminded her of the plot for just one of the guys from 1985. Yes, because I think She's the Man is very similar to that movie. So. Very possible. But she also did like, and this is sort of a little bit of a spoiler for tomorrow's Magic Mike, but it's at the beginning of the episode, it's not too much of a spoiler. Her favorite fire-ass title for Battle in Seattle was your answer of WT-No instead of (laughs) WTO. So she liked that a lot. So thank you, Jess, for writing in. I don't even know if Jess listens to this podcast or not. I know she was really far behind on the Joe 2 podcasts. She caught up on a lot of them in the last two weeks. But thank you, Jess, if you ever hear this. Thank you for writing into both podcasts. We appreciate you. But email us, watch at cageclub.me. Let us know what you think of the movie, of the podcast. You know, we're, we're wrapping up, but it's not going to die because as long as Charlize is making movies, this will be back. But we still have a handful more of really, really good ones. Any awards this week? Awards this week. So first off, so we got to nominate Seth MacFarlane for Worst Just Male worst. Just Actor. Just the worst <laughs> in general. <laughs> No, he's actually not the worst in general, but like in this movie. He's but let's start from the top. Do we want to nominate this for worst film? I can't in good conscience because of the dollar joke and a few other jokes that actually work. Do we want to nominate it for most wildly inconsistent tone? As in like super not funny and then kind of funny and then sure. sort of not funny? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that works. Craziest ending. This is one that we have not done in a while. Craziest ending to a movie that didn't deserve it. I guess not really. Like the yeah. ending makes sense within the story. It's more like the main character doesn't deserve the ending he gets. But that's right. also reflected on my list of Charlie Theron movies where she plays an unattainable dream girl yet is paired on screen with a guy who does not respect or deserve her. Ranked by the order of the disparity, which is my list name. In this movie, we got a twofer. She is both Liam Neeson and Seth MacFarlane, neither yep. of whom deserve her. But right now on my list, Mike, I have this ranked fourth behind both Woody Allen movies, and I also have it right behind, just barely behind, The Life and Death of Peter Sellers. I think that's a little bit worse okay. in terms okay. of like how poorly she's treated by the man in that movie. Because really, yeah. Seth MacFarlane does not deserve her, but to be fair, he does kind of worship her. You know what I mean? Like, he mm-hmm. is, yeah. he knows yeah. what he has. That she's like this wonderful woman, yeah. It's also saying a lot that for the minimal screen time she's in the Peter Sellers movie, she gets treated Worse yes. than she is, you know. So like, it's crazy how, she, yeah, that she gets third from that movie. But it's true. I don't want to nominate this for best or worst role, but I would be okay nominating it for most badass role. I mean, it's not going to beat Furiosa. Mm. It's not going to beat Atomic Blonde's role. But like, no. she's kind of great. Uh, she's kind of a badass in this movie. Yeah, I guess she's still in a bit of that Furiosa mode too, because she's got presence and swagger in this movie that just you don't want to fuck with her <laughs> you know i feel like nobody everybody is sort of taken aback by her appearance in town they're just like oh damn <laughs> like okay uh, most wasted performance no i think it's i think she's really good here most this is one we also haven't done in a while but i think might work 
most extreme manic pixie dream girl. Like, I feel like <laughs> she is, in a way, like, living that up. Like, hey, Seth MacFarlane, love your life in the West. I'm here to help you. Like, I think mm-hmm. it's not quite in the same vein as, hey, I my trailer broke down and this is where I live now, or read it in Arrested <laughs> Development. But I think Anna in this movie is a pretty strong example of the manic pixie mm-hmm. Old Western dream girl. If she's like, this is where my horse was shot, so I just decided to like build a cabin. Yeah, yeah basically. Here. Yeah, I guess ultimately in the Old West, like that wasn't around, so like this is as close you could get. But okay, yeah, I mean it, it fits enough of it. I just feel like she had to be a little more quirky, but I guess just her being in the Old West in general is yeah. quirky enough. Let's see here, what else? Most sexist film, no, because I think it captures the sexism of the time, but I think that the women here are for the most part, pretty empowered. Like, yeah, Sarah yeah. Silverman is great as this, like, entrepreneurial prostitute. Yeah, the men are, are yeah, emasculated they're, they're, yeah, exactly. throughout the movie way more, I feel. They address, like, the, 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 the bustle and, like, the, 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 like, the, const- yes. the, the constructs of the time, but they don't, yep. yeah, they, they, I mean, besides the cliche of William Neeson beating his wife in one scene, but, I mean, she, he hits her, doesn't he? Probably, yes. I don't remember, but yeah, think, probably. So. He's about to, you know, have his way with her when she... <laughs> When she hits him with the rock in the head, uh, yeah, I think I think the women characters are more, mostly empowered. I think so too. Yeah, uh, I'm going to nominate this for best Charlize outfit slash wardrobe because I think it's you know unique to what we've seen here. Worst love story, Anna and what's his name? I don't even know what his, his name is in this movie. I mean, they seem to like love each other and deserve each other. All right, so. fine. I'll leave I would say leave that there. Do we want to nominate then? This is another one that we haven't done in a while, Mike. Best love triangle, Albert Anna Clinch. Oh, okay. That's more along the line. That's a throwback to my last movie with Reindeer Games. It's amazing how so much like... Wait, how do we not have Reindeer Games on best love triangle? Wow, we gotta gotta add that in there. Yeah. Retroactively include it. Okay, so best non-Charlize death. What do we want to not... I feel like you have to nominate something. The (laughs) The ice block? Yeah, I was going to say the ice block. Ice block is also really graphic. Yeah, I was gonna go with the ice block just because it's the one that they draw the most attention to. Yeah, Duke, also. what's your what's your favorite death in this movie? I mean, the ice block. I mean, just because I remember seeing it from uh, what do you call it? The trailers came out, but I yeah. mean, the other thing that's pretty graphic. I mean, when when the camera explodes and yeah. the camera guy obviously is like just immediately bursts into flames, but like the two people getting their picture taken are on fire. And so, like, the two guys sitting there with guns just shoot them because they're on fire. Right, right. But yeah, I'll say the ice the ice block. And again, it's too bad that it, the, the ice block wins because there's so many more opportunities, you know, for, like, Looney Tunes types, types of deaths in this movie. I am going to nominate, even though I don't necessarily, you know, I just think that her delivery is so good. For best line, oh my god, I love you, I'm like the luckiest girl in the history of girls. I just really like the way that she delivers that, so I'm going to nominate that there. Best freak out, she's really freak out. Best cinematography, I'm going to put this here because it looks beautiful. Hell yes. <laughs> best score soundtrack, I'll also do that here because it's yeah. great. Like, great score. It's insane. Like, they belong, like, this score, I hope someone else uses it for something else because... Everything aside from the mustache song. <laughs> Should we nominate the mustache song for best song? Oh, man, I mean, it's not a great song, but it definitely gets stuck in your head. I was humming it this morning, making coffee. All right, so yeah, the mustache song. Coffee, put the water in the thing. Like, I was just... Conversely or similarly, do we want to nominate the mustache dance for best dance scene? You know what I quite like about that dance scene is that at first it starts off as, like, this couple's kind of dance, but at the end it it turns into, like, a... um, 
like a uh, West Side Stories types of type of dance against Seth MacFarlane, and it's almost like a dance battle at that point. Although Charlize is not involved, right? She's just on the sideline. Yeah, she she's she is at first when everyone's dancing like normal, but then somewhere in the middle of the song, it shifts into like like a dance battle thing. I mean, it's no Beach Street. <laughs> but like I always appreciate the effort for a dance battle best non-Charlize male or female anybody we want to nominate for best in this movie Giovanni comes close I mean like he's just doing a great performance of that character's great and stuff but I mean he's not central enough right really. I don't because Seth doesn't let anyone else take the spotlight long enough Right. You know, I would if we had the category that Tobin recommended or suggested back on the you know North Country or Whatever, whatever, whatever other episode he was on back then, if we had best on-screen couple, I would nominate Giovanni Ribisi and Sarah Silverman here, just because they're so weird and unique. But again, that doesn't really necessarily have a lot to do with Charlize. We've got to pair these down anyway, so let's skip that. Worst actor, worst male actor slash role, <laughs> Seth MacFarlane. <laughs> Sorry, dude. I like him as Ted, the teddy bear. Like, I actually quite like Ted 1 and Ted 2 has its moments as well. So yeah, so that's it. So anything, anything, anything else about this movie that we want to nominate, good or bad? Because I think we've nominated now for 12 things, which is, wow, that's a lot. Most wildly inconsistent tone, most badass role, most extreme manic pixie dream girl, best outfit wardrobe, best love triangle, best non-Charlie's death, best line, best cinematography, best song, best score, best dance scene, worst male actor slash role. So like, a lot, but I think it also sort of deserves a lot of that, so... Yeah. Anything yeah. else, good or bad, or are we, are we sort of uh, good to wrap up here on uh, this episode of Watch the Throne? I am good to go. That's a wrap. Well, thank you so much, Duke, for joining us on this episode. Uh, I do want to point out, this is has nothing to do with Duke, this is just a terrible transition, that two days ago, we released the first episode of Kyle Reinfried's Foodie Films, so Ooh. go check that out. I think we might have mentioned that either a week or two ago, but he was on our Muddy Joe Young episode, so go check that out. He is talking about, I believe... Julie and Julia in the first episode, and then come back next. (laughs) And then next Wednesday, so like in five days from now, I will be on talking about butter. Butter. Sweet. So go do that. Uh, But yeah, so go check out Foodie Films. Brand new. It's the newest show on the Cage Club Podcast Network. Go do that. episode of Soylent Green. Yes, I heard about that. So So that's that's very exciting. Where the special ingredient is people. Spoiler alert, but everybody knows that. Also, <laughs> Mike and I, since last time we recorded, decided to not only do one podcast next, but we're, I think we're going to sort of go out with a bang, maybe. Again, I keep saying this is going to be the last one we do. Who knows? It just feels like it might be. <laughs> but instead of just doing one new podcast when this wraps up, we're going to do two. So we will announce those by the time this podcast ends. We already know what we're going to do. I just don't want to get too hard, too far ahead of ourselves because they're not going to happen for six months or so. And last time that happened, it was Mr. Affleck. So, I, but know. I also do feel like the the person that we're doing this about, like we already kind of know the bad oh, stuff. No, yeah. Uh, yeah, so yeah, yeah. It's not can we get a hint? Uh, a very vague hint. It's very it's vague. A, it's a male. I referenced one of his movies earlier in this show. We're targeting right now, just to keep it on a Friday release and loving to release in the first of the month for the first episode, maybe Feb 1 might be the first episode. It's a little under six months from now, but we'll see. Because this is going to go, Charlize is going to go, Watch the Throne will go until the beginning of November-ish. So a little bit of time off, maybe do a Cinemaker's run, who knows. But starting up in about six months, two different podcasts, maybe three, but probably two. Go to cageclub.me, just keep your eyes peeled there. Oh, also, go to cageclub.me slash newsletter. I might tease things in the newsletter. Oh, yeah. Because if people care enough to get our newsletter every month, cageclub.me slash newsletter, I might just spoil or hint at what's coming up. 
because that's cool. Cool if you posted like a part of a picture and be like, "Ooh, yeah, like a little what yeah." Who is this? Mm-hmm, Who is this mm-hmm. person? Can you guess what this is? Yeah. Uh, so go to cageclub.me, Facebook.com/slash/cageclub at cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram. Email us watch at cageclub.me and also check out cageclub.me/newsletter. Get that in your inbox the first of the month every month and sort of be in the know of what great has happened and what's going to come up. So you might just know what's happening in the future. So I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And that was Dan the Duke Hayden. And we'll see you next time, next week for Dark Places on Watch the Throne. You men who long for love, you mustn't all despair. There's a secret you should know to capture the hearts of the fair. You may not have the looks. You may not have the dash, but you'll win yourself a girl If you've only got a mustache, a mustache, a mustache If you've only got a mustache